Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. This is the first time we've actually done this, having a married couple in the same industry on together. And it was so interesting to see how they live and work. They had so many coincidences. It was fascinating how they had crossed paths so many times and been interested in so many of the same things before they actually met on Kate's first day at Penguin. I know. I love that. So we have their bios here, and I have Brian Geffen. He's an editor at Henry Holt Books for Young Readers, Macmillan's Children's Publishing Group. He has worked with wonderful authors such as Julie C. Dow, Gregory Zuckerman, John Flanagan, Heather Kastner, Remy Lay, Katie Rose Poole, Rocky Callan, Christian McKay, Heidecker, and Andrew Marinus, among others. Brian acquires a wide variety of young adult and middle grade fiction, particularly fantasy, realistic, contemporary, and an action adventure, as well as graphic novels. Born and raised in Queens, New York, Brian is a fan of traveling, eating, rap, and learning foreign languages. And Kate Meltzer is an editor at Roaring Book Press, a division of Macmillan Children's Publishing Group. She has worked with best-selling and award-winning authors such as Marie Lu, Melissa de la Cruz, who was previously on our podcast, and Matt de la Pena, among others. Kate acquires projects across genres for younger readers of all ages, ranging from original board books to picture books, middle grade, and YA. She is particularly interested in coming-of-age stories, speculative fiction, immersive fantasy, rom-coms, and ugly cry love stories. According to IMDb, she's an actress known for the last five years. When she's not reading or editing, she can be found searching the streets of New York for the perfect croissant. Kate and Brian, we are so happy to have you here today. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having us. We're really excited Thanks to be talking about you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So tell us about how you both got started in publishing. Like a lot of folks, I came to publishing sort of as a late bloomer. I was always a, a big reader as a kid, but publishing sort of existed on this other, I guess, plane of reality. I, I, I suppose I kind of thought of it as like a, a magical land where books kind of were created and then appeared on the bookshelves. So it's surprising that I didn't think of publishing as a career choice earlier on, but I, I did not. I started off in college pre-med, which feels like a whole other lifetime ago, but like a lot of aspiring pre-med students, organic chemistry came along and sort of crushed those dreams. So it was sort of a a happy, uh, devastating moment because I had started off, even though I was pre-med, I did my undergrad at NYU and pre-med was not a major, it was just a concentration. So I was forced to have already had a major And at that time, I was a French major. I always loved French as a language, French literature. Paris is kind of my happy place. So dropping the pre-med concentration gave me the excuse that I needed to just kind of take a leap and sign up for a year abroad in Paris. And it was an incredible opportunity. I feel very lucky that I was able to do that, that I had kind of an excuse to do that. And that year abroad kind of gave me the chance to widen the scope of, you know, you know, do some soul searching, just to be super cliche about it. And 
it kind of forced me to recognize, you know, what I love so much about studying French was language. I consider myself a real word nerd, like so much, so many of us publishing people are. So remembering that and taking lots of different courses, I was taking art history classes and French literature classes. And then I finished my major so quickly, I started taking master's classes. And it just so happened in one of those classes, um, one of the professors decided to give us like a publishing 101 intro class. And I think he was doing that more for the aspiring writers in the room than necessarily publishing people. But I was kind of listening and my ears kind of perked up and and hearing about what the publishing process is like. And he actually took us on a little field trip to his publisher in Paris. And That's amazing. Yeah, it was really, really incredible. I, to this day, I'm, I'm very thankful to him for that. But this was also kind of happening in tandem with a very close friend of mine from high school. His mom worked at Scholastic, and she had always known that I was a big book person. I was the person who you know, when the next Harry Potter was coming out, was kind of like knocking on their door, like, hey, guys, where? <laughs> how's the book process going? So she, when she had heard that I had dropped pre-med, I think she had actually mentioned to my friend, has Kate ever thought about publishing? And so all of this was kind of happening at the same time. I feel really lucky that all of these stars kind of aligned. And by the time I came back or was getting ready to come back from my year abroad in Paris, I was determined to get my foot in the door in publishing. And she helped me get my foot in the door and I got my first internship at Scholastic and the rest is uh, kind of history. Oh, that's amazing. I always think of it as like a super magical place to start out because don't they have a ton of adorable characters in the office and like They do. They do. I actually haven't been since they they did some restructuring and remodeling in terms of the the, the building, I guess, but I am imagining they still have a lot of that in place. I remember when I came in in the morning, Clifford the Big Red Dog was off in there. They have this like huge stuffed animal, Clifford. So yeah, it was a very magical place to start my career. That's really cute. Oh my God, <laughs> so fun. So Brian, how about you? Tell us, how did you get into publishing? Uh, yeah, so I actually try not to admit this to my publishing colleagues as much as I can avoid it, but I'm going to admit to you that there was a long period of time, probably when I was in high school through like my early years of college, when I was actually not reading very much for pleasure, which I think unfortunately does happen, especially among a lot of like teen boys. And I had been an avid reader in middle school and elementary school and, and still continued and loved the reading I was doing in school, both in high school and taking literature classes in college. So I was certainly still reading, but it wasn't something where I was reading for pleasure anymore. And there was a moment, something you're going to find, by the way, is that Kate and I, before we even met, were kind of circling each other. We, we both studied abroad in Paris. We both interned at Scholastic. And then we finally met at Penguin, which is is where we both were working with our uh, first editorial jobs, but this is all coincidence. So when I when I was studying abroad in college, I was also in Paris, and I was living in a homestay, and I had a lot of friends, and so I'd hang out with my friends. But on nights when I was just kind of hanging with the homestay family or hanging on my own, I would often be watching TV or something like that on my computer and Skyping with friends. And my homestay mother was an English teacher, though she only spoke to me in French. And one day she said to me in French, she's like, oh, I noticed that you're always watching TV. Uh, you might want to try and pick up a book at some point. Uh, and <laughs> sort of like shamed me in the nicest motherly way possible. 
So I had always been a big fantasy reader for pleasure when I was younger and certainly kind of was always gravitated towards that genre. So I went to the local uh, English bookstore, searched for the biggest fantasy book that I could possibly find, which was a series that I didn't know how wildly popular it was when I picked it up, but it's called The Wheel of Time by Robert Jordan. It's a massive 14-book epic, all like 700 to 1,000 pages. And it really just kind of reignited my love of reading for pleasure. And so from there, I started writing and uh, remembering my love for Harry Potter like so many readers and of course kid lit editors in general you know i i went out of my way to try and find an internship at scholastic i will admit full disclosure that my uncle is a lawyer at scholastic and i me- i mentioned that just because this is an industry obviously that is populated by people quite frankly who have sort of these privileged positions who have connections and things like that and I, I don't want to deny that that was certainly my experience to get my foot in the door but i was able to intern at scholastic in their on the book club side of things in the production department so it was a really great experience because eventually you know now i work in trade publishing on the editorial side and it so it gave me an insight into this whole other part of the business and i was able to kind of weasel my way into editors' offices and say, hey, if you ever need someone to read for you, I'd love to gain some editorial experience. So I started reading Slush for an editor named Mallory Cass at Scholastic, who's really Mm. lovely. And from there, uh, like Kate said, it was history. Went on to work at Penguin for just over five years for Philomel Books and Children's, their children's group, and now at Holt Young Readers at Macmillan. I couldn't be happier. Were you both in Paris and at Scholastic at the same time? We were not in Paris or Scholastic at exactly the same time. We uh, we think of our pre pre relationship lives, yes, as sort of circling each other. Um, <laughs> because I was in Paris twenty ten to twenty eleven, and then I think I was interning at Scholastic right after Brian must have left. Yes, right? yeah, I think yeah. I I'm a I was a I'm just a month older than Kate, but I was a grade above her in school. So I was uh, abroad a year before she was and had was interning just a little bit before her. Also, just a funny side note is that before, even before we were abroad in Paris and, and Scholastic, Kay and I actually grew up in the same town, but what? we didn't know each other. We went oh to my gosh. schools. Yeah. I know. It's absurd. It's she really, actually, really absurd. <laughs> she was actually dog sitting for my, my brother, unfortunately, has since been divorced, but his his first wife, when he got married, he his mother-in-law had a dog sitter, and it turns out Kate was a dog sitting during the wedding. And this is something we what? found out years later. Yep. <laughs> yep. I definitely saw photos of Brian at the wedding, but didn't know who he was at that time. Little did I know my whole life would change when we met my first day at Penguin. Tell us that story. So it was March 2014. I know this because we're about to celebrate our six-year anniversary. Congratulations. Um, thank you. We, yeah, we met my first day. I remember being walked around, uh, being introduced to everybody. And I walked into the elevator and there was a handsome young man there already. And I was introduced to him and the name sounded familiar. And I, I had actually known Brian's uncle at Scholastic. His uncle is the menchiest of menches, the nicest man in publishing. So I got to know him while I was working there in the sales department, which is where I actually started my official career in publishing. I did an internship in editorial at Scholastic. And then when I graduated from NYU, uh, the first opening that popped up was in the sales department. And I, I got to work for one of the best bosses around, Alan Smagler, in sales. And I learned so much, but that's a 
a short digression. <laughs> More importantly, I met Mark Seidenfeld, who's, who's Brian's uncle, and he had told me about his nephew, who was a fellow Francophile, who also lived in Paris, who also worked in publishing, who was um, an editorial assistant at Penguin. And when he heard that I was leaving Scholastic to join the team at Penguin, also as an editorial assistant, he had told me to look up his nephew. And of course, in that moment, I remember distinctly thinking to myself, I am never going to meet this Brian kid, but nice <laughs> to know. And then when I met him my first day, I, I must have said something in French to him because when I know someone else speaks French, I really can't help myself, but take it <laughs> as an opportunity. And he responded. And um, a couple of lunches later... <laughs> Now we're married. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was so interesting. Yeah. Like, what, like, so a couple of things you guys said. One, thank you for kind of putting out there the privilege that you have just of knowing people and how that business can work through that, acknowledging that. I think we hear that a lot and in, in just the barrier to entry. And so just kind of like putting it out there, but also you guys are giving back to this world. You know, you're here with us, you're helping writers. So we really appreciate that. Another thing that you said that I think is so interesting is we talk a lot about energy in publishing, right? And how your energies like align to this point where you met and even though you've been circling each other for years, that kind of happened. Do you find, this is kind of a pivot question for both of you, but do you find that when you're acquiring books, you feel that kind of energy like, I've been waiting for this book or that there is something to that, I guess. It's kind of out there question. I've never asked it before. I really like that question, actually. That's an interesting uh, sort of lens to view the acquisitions and submissions process through them. So I'm trying to like acclimate myself. I think that there are times where there are submissions that come my way that feel like, you know, I had been looking and sort of putting out quite frankly, manuscript wishlist tweets about, and Mm -hmm. then things come my way and it feels like the stars have aligned. But then there are situations where, you know, I think often agents, when I've met with agents in the past, occasionally, or even often I get a question about, are there things that you're not looking for so that I know not to submit these things to you? And I think in many ways that uh, question is one that I try to avoid as much as possible because I know the first instance that I say, oh, I don't know that I'm right for this particular category, that something is going to come my way, I'm going to bite my tongue and I'm going to be like, of course, it, that completely contradicts that I didn't want that kind of thing when I loved this project that just came my way. I think in many ways it's, it's an either or situation. Sometimes it feels like the stars aligned and I just kind of voiced uh, a submission into being that I really wanted. In other <laughs> cases, something comes my way that like I totally didn't see coming. It's I, I'm working more and more on graphic novels these days, and I will admit that I was not a, a graphic novel reader. I mean, obviously, it's a category that has exploded more recently, but I wasn't much of a comics reader as a kid, not for any reason other than the fact that I just didn't happen to gravitate towards them. But now I'm sort of through happy coincidences and working on more and more graphic novels. So that's kind of an instance of the latter category. So can you tell us a bit about what's on each of your manuscript wish lists at the moment and how your tastes differ? Sure. It's funny because we we are so compatible in so many ways as people. There's some overlap, I think, that we both have, but it's kind of in the we know it when we see it kind of category, if that makes sense. Um, because describing each of our tastes, I think we do sound much more different than Perhaps we we expect when you kind of visualize the um, the Venn diagram, Brian. You can absolutely correct me if anything that I say here doesn't hit home for you. But 
I I work a bit more on the younger side of things. My first internship at Scholastic, I was working with Ken Geist and Cartwheel Books. Um, so I have a strong background in picture books. And then when I started in editorial, in my first uh, position as an editorial assistant at Putnam, I got to work with Matt De La Pena on his incredible award-winning picture books and a number, just a, a number of incredibly talented authors. Um, so I... I'm looking for books in the picture book space. And then as we kind of get older, I think is where Brian and I start to have more overlap there. But I, I tend to gravitate on, I guess, two ends of the, the spectrum when it comes to picture books, um, the very quirky and irreverent kind of books. I don't eat my, we don't eat our classmates kind of projects. A favorite of mine growing up are Myra Commons picture books. I just think she's a total, total genius. And all of the the background that I described Aside, I think if it had not been for her uh, Max books, and in particular, Ooh La La, Max in Love, the story of the dog poet Max who moves to Paris and meets Crepe Suzette and falls in love, I don't know Aww. if I would be the person that I am today. So I, I love those kinds of very um, quirky and, and unique picture books. I love really playful wordplay um, language is something that really attracts me. And then on the other side of the spectrum, I, I feel a real kinship with stories that deal with, you know, really, you know, deep personal issues. I think that Matilda Pena's picture books are so powerful because they are so personal and so universal and deal with some issues that can be really difficult. Love in particular was a book that I, I worked on that I, I just think is, is magnificent because of the way it, it talks about issues that are really important and can be difficult, but in a way that's very honest. And I think that kids really pick up on that and they really deserve that honesty. I think that they understand a lot more than sometimes adults give them credit for. And I think there's definitely room to be creating books that speak to kids on that level um, about important issues that are touching their lives. So I guess that's kind of the picture book end of things. Middle grade and YA are a bit more um, similar, I guess, than my taste in picture books. I gravitate more towards contemporary realistic. I think that, I mean, favorite reads that I have enjoyed over the past couple of years are books like I'll Give You the Sun, um, We Are Okay, Emergency Contact. I think that books about relationships are really captivating. I think that relationships are, they're fascinating. I think that that especially for teens, the relationships that you have, whether it's with friends, first love, siblings, parents, grandparents, they are kind of what make you who you are and how you find yourself amidst all of those relationships, I think is really, really fascinating. So I kind of gravitate in that space. And middle grade is kind of like a completion of that circle, I suppose. I know that, that Brian has some of this in his family as well, but I think that one issue that we are seeing kids dealing with today um, is the, the refugee crisis, I think, is something, and, and the experience of, of immigration is something that each generation kind of understands and explores in different ways that are kind of shades of the same. My grandma came to this country as a refugee, and I know that she had always hoped that refugees would be seen differently than her family was seen. But unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be the case. I can only be hopeful that in the future, uh, we are creating books for kids who will grow up to be adults who will be the change that we're wishing that we could see in the world right now. So 
That's awesome. Kind of a nutshell, but a little bit of everything. I tend to pretty much be focused on middle grade and YA, uh, very much so on fiction. I do some nonfiction, but for the most part, the nonfiction I do, I tend to sort of generate ideas myself and then approach writers. So in terms of like what I'm usually getting in my inbox, middle grade and YA, very much fantasy or realistic and temporary fiction. And then I, like I said, I've also started doing some graphic novels as well. So on the middle grade front, I grew up on sort of like a lot of these great classic fantasy books, a lot of like Newbery winners, like The Giver. And so that book is really like imprinted in my mind and those high stakes and and um, kind of what Kate was talking about, like really taking on issues that I think treat kids with honesty, but but don't hold back and showing darkness and showing pain and tragedy, but also sort of leaving on a note of hope. I think that balance is really important. So uh, something like The Giver or more recently, something like The Girl Who Drank the Moon, I go like really deep into the fantasy forest, but I also uh, do like something lighter with just a hint of magic, like um, uh, A Snicker of Magic is a book that I, I really love that I think fits in that vein. So that's the middle grade fantasy stuff on the realistic side of things. I love affecting beautifully written middle grade contemporary in the vein of KT Camillo and Jacqueline Woodson and Catherine Applegate. I have an author who is actually an illustrator as well. Her name is Remy Lai and she came out with a book last year called Pie in the Sky, which is about a boy who moves from Southeast Asia to Australia and has to learn English and he's coping with the loss of his father. But he also is dealing with his annoying and hilarious little brother and there's hijinks that ensue and, and there's that beautiful mix of salt and salty and sweet, which I really cherish. So that's kind of the middle grade that I'm looking at for YA. I also do fantasy and contemporary. The fantasy, I really love complex intricate intricate world building thinking lee bardugo and laney taylor i love king of scars and muse of nightmares and so particularly when i can find fantasy that kind of brings world building in from cultures that i feel like either either underrepresented or not even seen at all in ya fantasy that gets me really really excited I love swoon-worthy moments. I love action and adventure, and I love multiple POV casts in particular. On the YA front, I kind of go – on the contemporary front, excuse me, I go in two different directions. I really like the more dark and gritty sort of novels. Uh, I think this is where Kate and I have probably the most overlap. She was talking about I'll Give You the Sun and We Are Okay, um, and stories that I think tackle mental health honestly um, really, really resonate with me. My mother is a social worker and my father was a social worker and changed careers. Thankfully, they did not therapize me too much growing up, but I've certainly gotten some influence from that and, and it definitely has affected my tastes. And then I also love stories about identity and forging your own path, books like I'm Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter with the fire on high. But I also love sort of like goofy and silly and and, and sort of love stories as well in that vein. And then on the graphic novels front, I'm really looking for books that concentrate very much on sort of coming of age experiences and characters who are going on journeys of self-discovery. So books like This One Summer, American Born Chinese, Real Friends by Shannon Hale. I'm just really excited in particular about where graphic novels are going at this point in time and how uh, diverse they are in terms of subject matter and creators. Of course, we can need to continue to, to diversify the sort of creator pool and of, of um, people in our industry as well. So interesting. And so as you guys, and I, I'm like, 
going rogue with you two. Like, I don't know why. I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> because, so I keep thinking of like when I was a teacher and I and I taught fourth grade and my roommate taught fifth grade, we'd come home, we'd be like, da 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 will be going on and on about school. So like what is your how do you guys like take your 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 work life and your home life are you guys always just kind of like talking about books i mean do, do you get to a point where you're like there's no more books we can't talk about books <laughs> <laughs> um i think it always depends on the day yeah i think we have mixed results on the separating work and <laughs> home time front and i will admit i'm often the bigger offender just because i really value kate's opinion and i'm in a very special and privileged position to have not only be living with my wife, but also a a peer and colleague of mine whose opinion I value really highly. So I think not only just having someone whose opinion you value, but also someone who speaks the same professional language as you, like you're tempted often to kind of just bring work home. And plus, as we all know, there are limited barriers, I think, or limited sort of like separation and publishing in general. Like we do take home a lot of work and because we're so passionate about it and we're kind of editing work, especially can kind of creep into the weekend. It's easy to kind of cross the line or not even establish a line, I think at times. But that said, we also have learned over the years now that we're deeper into our careers that we do need to kind of turn it off at certain points and brief. And then obviously that's in our best interest to kind of refresh, but yeah, we definitely are uh, bringing home conversations about crap, but we are very good. I should say I'm very professional about not sharing, you know, what submissions we have, anything that would be sort of mutual territory. Cause there are times where we do end up finding out after the fact that we have the same submission from an agent. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah. So, so if there was one thing like, so, so what, what do you guys, like, if you talk about one thing, what do you wish writers knew from your side of the desk, from the editing point of view? I think, I mean, I think that when we think about editing and when we think about editors, at least I feel this way, I always had this vision of like someone sitting back with their feet up, reading a manuscript, a fedora perched on their head, someone <laughs> Perkins, I suppose. But unfortunately, the truth is the amount of time that I actually get on a given workday to read or edit is pretty small compared to all of the other tasks that are kind of on an editor's to-do list on any given day. A lot, well, there are a lot of meetings, and I'm sure that's that's the same in any industry. But on top of the meetings, there is a lot that happens behind the scenes that make the books happen in terms of transmitting a manuscript to copy editing. Uh, There's a lot of paperwork in terms of getting a contract going just to make sure that our authors get paid in a timely fashion and things are moving in a timely fashion. There's a lot of paperwork. There's just a lot of paperwork in general, um, let alone finding the time to write copy for your books and meet with the publicist and meet with the marketing team and, you know, meet with everybody else. Again, a lot of meetings. Unfortunately, there are whole weeks that go by where I'll be lucky if I find an hour to carve out while I'm at the office to read. And that's, that's time that I have to split between reading submissions that are coming in from agents to acquire and time split with manuscripts that I've already acquired that I need to edit so that I keep the book on schedule. So it's it's uh, it's not as bleak as I think I'm making it sound, but unfortunately we don't have as much time as we wish that we did to read is kind of the long and short of it. 
So you both started in areas that are not editorial. Um, I think, Brian, you said production and Kate, you said sales. Can you tell us a little bit more about what those areas do and perhaps a little bit about what it's like to work there and why we don't hear as much about these very vital, vital parts of how it all comes together? Sure, absolutely. So yeah, I started in sales. I did, I think it was about a year-long internship in editorial at Scholastic, but when graduation time came around, the editorial jobs are usually fewer and farther between. But I heard about an opening in the sales department at Scholastic, and thankfully I had some really close colleagues who told me and explained to me why it was a great opportunity, and I listened to them, thankfully. Sales, you probably don't hear about sales as much because, you know, they're doing so much behind the scenes to make sure that accounts are buying in the books that publishers are putting out. They, I mean, a lot like production, a lot like I think a lot of the teams who who are part of the publishing process, they do so much behind the scenes that don't get the spotlight, but are such integral parts of the puzzle. The sales team, I mean... They are kind of the stop, I wouldn't say right before publication, because at a lot of publishing houses, in fact, at all of them, um, sales has a lot of input in terms of the projects that are being acquired. You know, when an editor brings a book to their team, they want to make sure that everyone sees their vision for it, but that you are getting the support from all of the departments. And sales is kind of who's going to tell you, you know, this account is going to see this great part of this book. Um, this is going to be really appealing to this account and kind of helping you to make a case for acquisition, to make a case for how much money you can pay for a book, to kind of explain what the distribution will be by the time publication comes around. Accounts are essentially the, um, the places where you will, as a consumer, be able to go in and buy a book. So an account is like Barnes & Noble or Target or um, the indies are kind of viewed as an account in terms of sales. You know, it all depends on the, the once you drill down, things get more and more specific in terms of like regional indies and, and, you know, aspects of the business like that. But accounts are essentially places that are going to be buying in copies of books in order to sell them to consumers. And then throughout the process, kind of being in touch with all of the teams in terms of the the quantity of books that we are projecting to print and that number also being used to determine it's it's kind of a symbiotic relationship with the number of copies that you'll be printing and the number of copies that you are planning to sell and that is determined a lot by comp titles which is something that you'll probably hear a lot about and you guys I'm sure know a lot about in the publishing industry comp titles are competitive titles um, it's a book that you can point to and you can say, this book will sell like this book because it has similar themes, the the writing feels reminiscent of it, and because this previous book sold X number of copies, we expect to sell X number of copies of this new book. You use those benchmarks because it's kind of a shorthand to create these projections. And publishing, it's, it's a lot of projecting. You don't know what the future is going to bring, but you want to make informed decisions. So that's kind of what we use comp titles for. So in terms of my editorial brain coming from sales, you know, I'm always kind of thinking about comp titles, um, how an account is going to be able to envision a publishing track for a book that they're going to be selling in. You know, you want to buy in X number of copies of this book because this book published three years ago, sold this number of copies. Like, you know, I, I wish that 
uh, it didn't sound so sort of formulaic, but the fact is that is a lot of how like the business side of publishing works. And that's why sales is so important because they are the ones on the, the ground going to the accounts. They're the ones paying the visit and saying, you know, this book is so great. This is why you want to buy in all these copies. So making sure that those accounts have sales materials on time, you know, materials to read, because as we know so much about the the publishing process is about knowing what you're buying. So kind of all of that informing the work that I do as an editor has been really important, but also, you know, appreciating the incredible role that sales plays in the publishing process. If it weren't for them, you wouldn't be able to walk into a store and buy a copy of a book. So um, I think they really are part of the unsung team of heroes of the publishing industry for sure. So I think that's so interesting because it's so quantifiable, except how do you know people are telling the truth about comps? (laughs) How do you know they're not just going for like the biggest (laughs) book they can possibly go for? And then they're like, give us a million dollars. Well, I mean, you are right. I think part of our job as editors is, you know, being honest. I will say working in sales, you can tell when someone is exaggerating, but, you know, sales, they're reading everything. As an editor at a particular imprint, I am reading the books that I am editing. Maybe if I have time or or I'm really interested, I'm going to read another book that my colleague is, is editing. Um, but the fact is, in order to you know be reliable in terms of how they're positioning our books out in the world, sales is reading everything, everything. And they at Macmillan, they are also reading the projects that we bring in at acquisitions. Um, at our acquisitions meeting, in advance of the meeting, we send out materials. So sales has read that manuscript. And if I'm trying to comp it to, and you're never supposed to do this, but you know if someone walks in and says this is the next Harry Potter they know that you're exaggerating. Like there's, you can't, you don't comp to Harry Potter. That's just the rule. But, you know, they they can kind of sniff it out. So you make a completely valid point um, with that concern, but we're all, you know, it doesn't help you to overinflate the potential of a book. Sales knows when you're doing that. So for the most part, I haven't seen people, I haven't seen people do that. And that's true also, of course, when you're pitching agents, because we can also tell if that's ridiculous and you look as if you haven't been reading a lot in your genre, if you just go for the biggest books possible. And and that's a really good point, uh, Jessica, as well. Um, you know, sales and editorial, we're all, we are reading so much and people are reading, you know, so much outside of our publishing house as well. And I think that you're totally right. You know, if you're comping to something that is completely outlandish, what really ends up being revealed is maybe you're not, you don't know as much about um, what you're reading as you kind of are pretending to. So, you know, I think that a lesson to take away from all of this, of course, is, you know, just read, read, read as much as you possibly can, because that only makes you a more informed editor, writer, what have you. Um, but uh, I say this all just to completely agree with what you just said. Awesome. Thank you. And Brian, I've heard that production involves a ton of spreadsheets. Is that true? <laughs> uh, it, it so involves- it is <laughs> it does involve, I think there are spreadsheets in numerous departments. There are definitely a lot of spreadsheets. I think that it's interesting because when you look at like movies and television, the credits, even if they roll by super fast, you still get a glimpse of like everyone's role and every contributor to the process. And I think the closest thing we have, book publishing is not like that. Um, there are obviously acknowledgements pages and designers are listed on copyright pages, but for the most part, 
a book seems to be almost a solo endeavor when it's viewed from the standpoint of the consumer or the reader. But obviously, so many more people go into that process. And I think of possibly of any of all the groups involved, production might be the biggest unsung heroes of them all. So yes, a lot of spreadsheets. I will admit there were moments where it has a Dunder Mifflin-esque feel. And I say that with with love because you're doing a lot of purchase <laughs> orders. But, but it's really important work, work where production team is sort of meeting with printers, talking to their printer contacts to kind of negotiate the most competitive prices. Um, because production is sort of one involved with arranging the printer who we're setting up to actually print the books and then also really helping guide us through the experience of choosing how a book is going to be printed, the physical specifications. Um, so, you know, when you see books that have a glossy jacket or books that have uh, sort of raised text, what we call embossing, all of those things, all of those elements are features that production needs to account for in their estimate, things that they have to be experts on. Of course, design, editorial, we need to understand the effects of a book. We need to understand paper quality, all of these sort of individual parts that go into a book. But production are really the experts on this, and I always defer to them. There's so many different sort of special effects, as you call them, that you can have on a book cover or a book jacket. And, you know, as many as I know, I'm sure I know what. 5% of what a production person knows. So uh, that guidance is really, really invaluable. They're essentially making sure production that we are printing our books in a way that is making them as beautiful as possible. And also in a way that is um, as cost effective as we can be. Of course, we want our books to be beautiful objects to behold, but we also need to be, we are a, a business that is for profit and we need to be thinking about that. And so Printing costs are a huge consideration and a huge part of the process and something that production is really overseeing and making sure that we're meeting our profit margins, that we're not overspending on books, that we're always finding the best way to present our books um, as beautiful physical objects. And so the sheer knowledge of paper and inks and special effects, those sorts of things are really, really important. I think in my editorial career have given me insight into a lot of the things that I've been describing. I think that I have a little bit more knowledge perhaps than your average editor in terms of paperweight and jacket specs and these things that might not necessarily seem like the most glamorous parts of the process, but are huge, huge elements of consideration. And it's also just, I feel really lucky that I was exposed to a different part of the business. The book club's side of things was also very different. If you all remember as kids or you have kids now who get to um, participate in the book clubs, scholastic book clubs. So those sort of promotional materials that they would send home. My job essentially was to sort of be the person who was working on producing those, those uh, promotional materials. So really, really invaluable experience for me in my career. And I feel lucky I got to go through it. Does everyone ask for Decalage? I know so many people like have a crush on Decalage. <laughs> I, I think, actually really don't like Decalage. I think it's one of the most divisive <laughs> yes. uh, divisive effects in publishing because I actually find you guys, that – I don't even know what that means. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. So Some people call it rough – what? Rough front? Rough – it's um, – Rough edges, decal yeah. edges. Yeah. I mean it's essentially when you have the ends of the paper, if you look at the bottom of a book and you see all like the individual pages, they kind of look like they're uh, imprecisely cut and they don't match up perfectly and it lends a sort of old-timey, almost like parchment-y feel, feel to the book. Um, I think some people feel like it lends that kind of uh, – 
classic look to a book. Um, I will say personally, I am team anti-decolleges. I hope no one gets upset <laughs> at me for that. But to me, it actually rather than looking old timey can often look like there were printing errors, but maybe that's just the production brain in me. My, my past experience still haunting, uh, not haunting, but affecting my present outlook on things. Can you give each other superpower? I'm going to echo what Kate said. I know what she would want, but we are both super, obviously we're both Francophiles and we both love language. So I know Kate's superpower, if she could have one, would be to speak any language so that she could communicate with anyone and adapt to any environment and to be able to just explore that world of language with anyone, anywhere. Um, I think obviously that's something that's really near and dear to our hearts, working in publishing and working with words. Um, And so she's very on theme. I'm curious what she's going to say, because my answer would not be as on theme for me, unfortunately. I know for a fact that Brian wishes more than anything to be able to teleport. Mm. Um, And I think this is actually very on brand for him, but also for us as a couple, because we really love traveling. I think that... um, if we had endless amounts of endless, endless uh, funds to travel wherever and, and endless time to do it, that would be something that we would love to do. And I think that between my uh, ultimate ultimate polyglot skills and Brian's teleportation, I'm assuming that this functions in a way that if, if he can teleport, he'd be able to take me with him. We would be able to travel anywhere and, and talk to anyone. So I think that those two powers together kind of make us a superpowered unit. I love that so much. I like, and, and you know, what a great, like, can you imagine just being like, what do you want for dinner? Pop. <laughs> well, actually that now that you mention it, Kate has made it sound so much more noble, but really the reason I want teleportation is to be like, I'm going to go to Tokyo for a sushi lunch. I'm going to go to Paris nice. later <laughs> for a nice dinner. I wouldn't even use it in the most glamorous. Well, I guess food is glamorous, but it would really it be glamorous. food motivated. <laughs> Because as Kate said, we do love traveling, but I will say when we travel, we very much are restaurants and food focused first, and then we kind of build our itinerary around where we're going to eat. Yeah, we find things to do to fill the time in between meals. It's a little ridiculous. The only place where that wasn't a huge problem was when we were in Mexico City, which is such a fantastic place to go if you like food, because the street food scene there is so amazing, but it's kind of an activity in and of itself. There were so many little taco stands that Brian was determined for us to find, but it would kind of be like a food adventure that you go on and then you were uh, rewarded at the end with some delicious tacos. I should add that we are not uncultured louts. We do love art and history and seeing cities and all those kind of things. But if I'm going to be completely honest, food is absolutely our first motivation. (laughs) Nice. So what advice do you have for writers? I, I would really say first and foremost, read as much as possible. I know it's, it's a piece of advice that is given out often, and as hated as much as I hate to echo sort of advice that other people have given, I think it is really so so crucial uh, for various reasons. I mean, I know we were obviously, or you were obviously talking earlier about comps, um, and so one, it's really important if you are a writer who's trying to pitch to agents and, and eventually, hopefully, 
have a, a manuscript land in an editor's inbox. It's so important to know the market and know front list books and not just backlist books that are, are popular like those big bestsellers to show that you know the market, not just to display knowledge, but but also because it's really important to understand what kids and teens are looking for at this present moment in time. And I think that that's the experience you get through reading widely. And from a craft standpoint, I, I don't think that there's any better education than reading as much as possible, particularly within the genre that you are interested in and and interested in writing in. And so I think that reading as widely as possible and as, as uh, voraciously as possible is such an important thing and such an educational experience as a writer and someone trying to better understand the industry. Because I think as a writer, it's really important to recognize that as much as first and foremost, your job absolutely is to create beautiful books. It's also to sort of understand how to be a part of the business of publishing. And I think understanding how the business works, understanding the products themselves, books, and knowing how the market is sort of functioning and what's working in the market at that moment in time will really be invaluable lessons that kind of serve you well throughout your your writer and author career. And I am going to piggyback on that answer as well. I I do have to reiterate that reading as much as possible is just such an important part of this business. To Brian's point about understanding the business, you know, I guess it's not even just about reading. It's about just consuming as much as you can in terms of, you know, what we do at the end of the day, these are stories. And a lot of the time, most of the time, they're stories about characters. So understanding story, understanding structure, understanding character. A lot of the time, you know, if you or pitching a book, it's not even necessarily being able to point to a similar book, but you can point to, you know, another cultural moment, a movie, a TV show, you know, readers um, who are out there buying books, they aren't just consuming books, they're consuming so many other things as well. Um, and being able to position your book in the context of, of everything else is also a really great skill. But to go back to, to reading specifically, um, because I think that the written word is such a unique thing, reading, reading, reading books, books in your genre, books out of your genre, not even just books, you know, reading plays, reading screenplays, reading anything you can get your hands on. I personally love reading restaurant reviews. Brian and I are big restaurant people, but I find the way that critics describe different dishes, you know, it, it's a different linguistic exercise. But I think that that in terms of craft is something that is really helpful as well. Um, just being able to understand how other writers use your medium in different ways, I think is very eye opening. And to borrow a quote from one of my very favorite people, um, everything is copy. So being able to use the things that you are digesting and, and you know, taking in in terms of all of the reading that you're doing in your life, I think can only make the, your, your work even better. So where can we find you guys online? We are both on Twitter. I am on Twitter at Kate Meltzer, one word. And I am also on Twitter at Brian, B-R-I-A-N underscore Geffen, G-E-F-F as in Frank, E-N as in Nancy. And thank you so much, you guys. This is amazing. Thank you both so much for having us. This was yes, such a blast. Thank you. We're so excited that you're joining our faculty. So you can book meetings and critiques with both Kate and Brian, and we will link to that in the show notes as well. We're excited to, to join the community and to do some great critiques. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. And not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, 
but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.